Science Talk will begin after this short message. Hi everyone, I'm Andrea Alfano. And I'm Brian Stallard. And we're the hosts of Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. The stories we tell involve some big issues that may seem totally unrelated to genetics, like climate change. We'll tell you how genetic tools could help in the fight against climate change a little later on in this episode of Science Talk. Stay tuned. Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on September 5th, 2018. I'm Steve Mursky. Every September, Scientific American publishes an issue devoted in its entirety to a single topic. We cleverly call it our single topic issue. And the 2018 edition is about you. To explain further, I spoke with Gary Sticks. When Scientific American was founded in 1845, Gary was the copy boy. Okay, hasn't been here quite that long, but he's a senior editor. And when I showed up more than 20 years ago, he already had big piles of books on his desk. But enough about us. Let's talk about you. Gary, the special September issue, single topic issue, humans, why we're unlike any other species on the planet. What was your role in putting this together? So I came up with this idea about actually several years ago because I was uh, playing part in another uh, special issue on evolution. And I did the article on um, how humans are somehow different from other species. And I realized when I did that, that there was so much more that we could do. And that kind of led to this issue. The, the, the thing that really triggered this was um, the recognition that we, in so many different ways, are not really special. That the more people look, the more they find that humans are uh, in all of the respects that they were thought to be special in the way they communicate, in our cognitive abilities, our um, abilities to uh, think of what other people are thinking. Many other animals, particularly primates, have these abilities. That still begs a huge question. We do things that other animals don't. Um, we've spread throughout the planet. We uh, build skyscrapers. We've gone to the moon. So why is that? And that's what this issue attempts to address. And you were the overall editor for this issue. Yes, I was. Right. Uh, three parts to the issue. Part one is why us? What's in that part? That part tries to get at the specifics of the question that I just raised. Why are humans still special? And it uh, acknowledges at every step of the way that in many ways we're not, but it does identify a few things that make us stand out. And the one thing is that we teach from generation to generation new things that are then built upon in a new generation. Other species do that as well, but they don't do it with the same precision that humans do. And uh, an example of that um, that appears in one article is how the things that are taught are then practiced. And after they're taught with this um, high degree of precision. And there are ways that in that 
first section, Why Us, that's illustrated by um, taking something that was very ancient, like a flywheel, uh, from the Egyptians and show how it's been adapted over many generations into something like the internal combustion engine. Okay, and part two, us and them. What's in the us and them section? So in the us and them section, there is an article in there uh, that's entitled The Last Hominin Standing, the last uh, human of a number of human species that is the only one remaining uh, subsequent to our breaking off with chimpanzees and and other species that went uh, along a uh, a different branch of the evolutionary tree. And um, the answer to that is we were probably lucky because those other human species were actually developing uh, in many of the same ways that we were. And um, it could have been a climate-related issue. It could have been um, that we got to a cognitive stage of development slightly earlier, but not much. And we were just lucky. I mean, it could have been that Neanderthals would have populated the whole planet by now. But that section also deals with um, other issues, such as the fact that as humans built upon their unique abilities, their groups became much larger. So to accommodate that, they had to develop a whole set of rules and norms to be able to deal with that. And that is commonly what we think of as morality. And another aspect of that is when groups got to a certain size, they tended to split off into separate groups. And at a certain stage, um, that resulted in the advent of warfare, that humans early on were not uh, innately uh, belligerent, but that that's something that developed as group sizes grew. I forget which evolutionary theorist it was, but I recall some years back, maybe 10 years ago, somebody wrote a paper about the fact that you can't have war without altruism and you can't have altruism without war. They have to co-evolve. Does that ring a bell with you at all? There are so many theories about this, and the idea that humans are not innately warlike is highly controversial. I mean, this is one uh, take on that, uh, and it's a very cogent take, but I I don't think it's by any means the last word. I think that if you uh, gathered together a panel on this, even people who initially thought that they would agree by the end would be arguing like crazy. <laughs> they'd, they'd start to fight, maybe somebody would throw themselves in front of somebody else to save them. Exactly. Part three of this special issue is Beyond Us and uh, some tantalizing stuff in there. So the question is, what happens now that we are such a dominant presence on the planet? And one of the things that is happening is that it's causing all of the rest of the animal kingdom to uh, kind of adapt to humans. And probably the best example of that and the most uh, severe example of that is 
life in cities for other animals um, and plants as well. Um, having uh, spiders who uh, avoid sunlight uh, to um, protect themselves. Uh, dandelions, instead of being spread to the wind, are actually have their seeds fall straight down. Uh, some insects turn color. So the rest of the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom is kind of at a stage where they're adapting to us. In addition to that, perhaps the most or one of the most discussed issues in our realm of science and technology is whether machines are going to take over from us at some point. And the author that we have, uh, Pedro Domingos, answers that in the negative, uh, primarily because uh, machines don't have any goals. They don't have any intentions. And we're a long way away from creating machines with the multifaceted goals that any human child or adult or uh, any human really has. Uh, so Domingos's take is that as artificial intelligence continues to develop, what's going to happen is that artificial intelligence will become like an alter ego. It will be uh, kind of a companion. You can see that today in its very early stages with things like uh, Siri or Alexa. But the uh, picture that he puts forward is one in which uh, they will have a, a much greater level of sophistication. And a lot of the routine things that we do for ourselves will be done by our machine companions. And the issue ends with a look at something that I kind of referred to earlier, the role of luck in all of this, because it's quite possible, according to um, the view put forward by the author John Gribben in the, the article Alone in the Milky Way, that we may be the only technological civilization in this galaxy and perhaps even in the universe. And he issues that as a call for us to take better care of ourselves and the planet in an age of uh, climate change and partisanship and whatnot. He's not arguing that there's no other life out there, just no other intelligent, developed, uh, technological civilization. Yeah, that's basically what he's saying. His argument is very sophisticated. He puts forward a set of arguments about how um, we are in a very special place in the galaxy. We're in a very special place in the solar system. And we also came about relatively late in the existence of life. Life was around for billions of years before um, the Cambrian explosion that led to uh, many other creatures uh, springing forth. And, you know, again, that could have been pure luck. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everyone. It's Brian and Andrea again, the hosts of the Base Pairs podcast. Did you know that about 50 million years ago, the concentration of atmospheric carbon dioxide was nearly nine times what it is now? But that doesn't mean we have nothing to worry about right now. 
It does mean that we can look to the past for helpful hints while tackling climate change today. It took more than half a million years and the help of one very small plant to cool the planet to the temperatures we enjoy. And Andrea spoke with a plant scientist right here at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory who hopes to learn from those tiny yet mighty plants. More about that in a bit. By the way, the theorist I was thinking of who's done work on the coevolution of war and altruism is Samuel Bowles, B-O-W-L-E-S. Just do your Googling if you'd like more info on that subject. And you can hear Pedro Domingos on the episode of Science Talk about artificial intelligence and healthcare, which was posted on our website on June 18th. Now a bit more with Gary Sticks. Gary, so uh, a few months ago, I spoke to Brown University evolutionary biologist Ken Miller uh, about his new book, The Human Instinct, and he goes into some of these issues. Uh, That's a podcast that we ran earlier this year. He talks about the uniqueness of humanity, even though we're on a spectrum with a lot of other animals in terms of things that we used to think were uniquely human, like tool making or... Uh, language, things like that. Um, But one thing we talked about, he and I, that I did not include in that podcast is human chromosome two, which is a fascinating example of what makes us unique and uh, how we became different from the other great apes. And uh, I have saved that to run along with our discussion of this issue. So, would you like to hear about human chromosome number two from Ken Miller, Gary? I absolutely would. What is it about human chromosome two? Well, I'm going to let Ken Miller tell that story right now. One of the things that, that I always like to emphasize when I give public talks on evolution is that the evidence for human evolution is not just in fossil jawbones and teeth and so forth. That's what everybody thinks about. Everybody thinks paleontologists are still looking for what they call the missing link. But paleontologists will tell you, we've discovered so many missing links, pre-human ancestors to our species in the last three or four decades, that they're no longer missing. Um, we have an embarrassment of riches in terms of pre-human ancestry. In fact, The embarrassment is actually confusing because it's difficult to tell which of these many organisms was our direct ancestor, which was sort of our distant cousin, and which, if you will, was sort of like the crazy uncle up in the closet. Um, There are some dead ends, but there are some lines leading, we think, directly to us. But to me, I'm not a fossil person. I am a, you might say, I'm more of a DNA and RNA biologist than a fossil prospector. And I think the most spectacular evidence for human evolution is actually written in the human genome. And there are many examples of this. And in my book, I tried to give several. Uh, These include uh, a pseudogene known as Nanog, which is scattered around our chromosomes in a pattern that matches that of our closest relatives in a remarkable way. They include the fact that even though we, like other placental mammals, don't lay eggs, we still actually have the broken remnants of the genes for the yolk proteins in eggs scattered around our genome. 
And of course, the reason we have them is because we, like all mammals, did evolve from what were once egg-laying organisms, namely the mammal-like reptiles. And I go into that as an as example as well. But to me, the clearest and the most straightforward example of this is right there sitting in one of our chromosomes. Now, we human beings have 46 chromosomes. We each got 23 from mom and 23 from dad. The organisms most closely related to us are the other great apes. And I say other because we are actually one of the great apes. And the other great apes include gorillas, bonobos, chimpanzees, orangutan, and so forth. The curious thing is all of them have 48 chromosomes, not 46. So if we share a common ancestry with them, um, how did we get down to 46? Did we lose a pair of chromosomes? Well, the answer is any geneticist would tell you is no. The loss of what biologists call a homologous pair of chromosomes would be fatal. Uh, you wouldn't even get through embryonic development. So the only answer that would be consistent with evolutionary common ancestry is the following. And that is two chromosomes, which are still separate in the other great apes, must have fused together to form a single chromosome in our species. And that would have dropped us from 24 pairs down to 23. Now, that's not evidence. That's just basically an analysis. But the cool thing about evolution is that conjecture is testable. And if that was really true, if one of our chromosomes was formed by the recent fusion, about a million years ago, maybe two million years ago, of chromosomes that are still separate in the other primates, we ought to be, find, be able to find it in the human genome. Now, how could we find it? Two ways. Every chromosome has on its tips a series of repeated sequences known as telomere repeats. They're at the tips of chromosomes. If we carry a chromosome that was formed recently by the fusion of two other chromosomes, we should have head-to-head -head telomere repeats at the point where those two chromosomes got stuck together. It would be almost like finding a piece of scotch tape holding the two of them together. And every chromosome also has a special re region somewhere near the middle called the centromere. The centromere is where chromosomes attach to what we call the mitotic spindle when they're separated during cell division. If we have a recently fused chromosome, it ought to have two centromere regions. Enter the Human Genome Project, completed in 2002. People start scanning through it, and lo and behold, in 2005, what do we find? We do have a chromosome that has head-to-head -head telomere sequences right in the middle and also has two centromere sequences. It's human chromosome number two. And the sequences, DNA sequences, on either side of that fusion site correspond to what we used to call chromosomes 12 and 13 in the other great apes, gorillas and chimpanzees. That similarity, that homology, is so perfect and so compelling that geneticists working on the chimpanzee genome, the gorilla genome, and so forth, they no longer call those chromosomes in the other primates 12 and 13. They call them 2A and 2B because they correspond to the two halves of our chromosome number two. Now, um, this is much better explained on the blackboard or with a PowerPoint slide. But I always try to tell audiences, DNA sequences are not theories. They're not hypotheses. They're not conjectures. DNA sequences are facts. And this is a fact that is only explicable in terms of our common ancestry with the other great apes. And when I present this to lay audiences who are simply interested in knowing what's the evidence behind evolution, I got to tell you, it blows them away. 
I see the look on their faces and they go, wow. And, and sometimes I will challenge, especially a college audience. I'll say, okay, I just told you the chromosome two story. How many of you knew this before you came to the lecture tonight? And three or four hands go, will go up. And you know who's holding those hands up? Professors of genetics. They knew it. And then I'll say something to indict my own profession. Do you know whose fault it is that everybody doesn't know that? You know whose fault it is why you weren't taught that in school? It's my fault. And it's the fault of everybody else in the scientific community because we have such overwhelming and compelling and easy to understand evidence for evolution and we don't popularize it. We don't make people aware. We don't go around saying, look how clear the case is. And that's really the fault, the indictment of the entire scientific community. And that's one of the reasons I put the chromosome two story in this book. You know, it's to me, it's thrilling. It's a thrilling story that that we were able to figure that out, that we were able to come up with an idea about it and then look for it and find it. And it fits exactly the way it should. And that's exactly how science is supposed to work. And you also mentioned in the book, now this I didn't know, that there are actually perfectly healthy human beings with 44 chromosomes. Yes. Every every now and then someone will tell me, well, that must have happened first. That fusion must have happened first in a few individuals. And wouldn't wouldn't it interfere with fertility, with cell division and so forth? And the answer turns out to be there is a slight effect on that. But it turns out, and I'm going to take the easy part first. Um, The closest thing that we have on this planet to a truly wild horse are horses in Mongolia called Przewalski's horse. Przewalski's horse has 66 chromosomes. Domestic horses, Equus cabalis, if you will, has only got 64. Why is it that all domesticated horses, again, are missing a pair? Well, the answer is chromosome fusion. And we can see exactly where it happened. And it happened at some point. Uh, probably in Central Europe or Asia during the domestication of horses. So that's a very interesting thing. Now, here's the next thing. Um, The argument that if this had happened in one of our ancestors, they wouldn't have been fertile, they wouldn't have left descendants. There are now two scientific reports of families with 44 chromosomes. And in each case, it has resulted of a fusion between two chromosomes. The one I can recall immediately was a fusion between chromosomes 14 and 15 to form a single combined chromosome. This must have happened a couple of generations ago. The people are healthy. They're still viable. uh, And that shows that there's not a problem of mechanism here. Chromosome fusions, in fact, happen so common that there's a jargon term for them. They're They're called Robertsonian translocations. And they, they are well known in mice and other experimental animals. And it's not surprising that what happened in our ancestry as well. I'll be back in a moment. Hey, everyone. Thanks for sticking around. We were about to hear about a plant that supposedly saved the Earth from staying a hothouse climate. It was actually so hot that there were hippos in the Arctic. So lay it on us, Andrea. What was this plant that changed the world? The plant that seems to have driven so much of this huge change is what you might call pond scum. It covered the Arctic Ocean, soaking up mind-blowing amounts of carbon dioxide. And today, plant scientists are looking to a similar plant called duckweed to help control the climate once again. But we don't have half a million years to do this. Right. But we do have genetic tools. Scientists put them to use on Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Find us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out Evelyn Lamb's article on how math, specifically abstract algebra, helped her learn early music. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 